This podcast is brought to you by UK Coaching, here for the coach. Visit ukcoaching.org to grow your coaching skills and be part of the community. Good afternoon. Welcome to uh, mid-July of very much the same day and uh, a different week. Uh, Curious Coaches Club, we're back again. And this time, uh, super excited because this is a topic I can uh, bring out that kind of proper coaching geek in me as we start to talk about uh, coaching through games and using that as a coaching method in order to develop the people that we're working with. And regardless as to whether it's individual sports or team sports, lots of opportunity in how to use games to do this. So we've got a couple of fantastic guests with us today, and I'll let them introduce themselves. But you can see on the slide on the bottom left hand corner there, we've got Sally Needham, uh, works at the Football Association, and Will Roberts from the University of Gloucestershire. Uh, Sally, do you want to say a quick hello and introduce yourself? Can you hear me? Is that all right? Yeah, we've got you. Brill. Hi, everybody. I'm Sally. Um, as Nick said, I work at the Football Association. Um, I'm Cam's coach developer and oversee Derbyshire for an area. Um, my role basically is supporting coaches uh, through their coaching qualifications and then the support after. Um, but I've been in uh, the FA a while now. Um, so knowing Nick before, um, but yeah, but my area that I've kind of started to look at is more around stuff that's below the surface that helps support um, children and coaches um, and the stuff above the surface. So games based and things we do with play and games is kind of an area that um, I'm looking at at the moment. So, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. And like all good coaches, you've got flip chart paper on the wall with the inner workings of your brain scrawled all over. So um, very good. And Will, would you like to just come on, say hello and, and who you are? Yeah. Hi. Thanks, Nick. And and thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm Will, as you've said, I'm senior lecturer in sport and exercise science at the University of Gloucestershire. Um, I teach across postgrad and undergrad degrees. Principally, my role is as academic course leader for our coaching science programs at masters and undergraduate level. And yeah, I guess my my main area of interest is is around constraints based approaches to coaching and how we sort of encourage play and games to to help learning and development. Awesome, thank you. Really looking forward to today. Just like any of the rest of the sessions, please make sure your microphone's off and your video's off as well. Just makes the bandwidth a little bit easier. We'll continue the conversation in Connected Coaches. So within that, and we'll share some stuff later on, there'll be loads of different links and conversation pieces that you can catch up on there. But as with normal shows as well today, please make sure you engage with the chat box. We'll make sure we try and pick off any of the questions for Sally and Will as we go through. So make those as difficult and as complicated as you like. And I'll make sure that Sally and Will answer those rather than me. That's generally the best way for it to be done. Um, this is the route through today. So we're going to be starting with understanding a little bit more about why we use games as a way to ignite motivation and learning. We're then going to kind of continue the journey round to 
well, how will it support development? In what kind of ways will we get some benefits from using games? And then linked after the, uh, the pit stop at halfway, where we'll wrap up with a couple of questions at the halfway point, second half will be really into the practical side of it. So we'll have done a little bit of the theory in the background to start. And then in the second half, it will be, well, what do we need to think about as we get back into coaching and we return back to some form of normality as different forms of sport return? And then, as always, we'll finish with some of the take home messages as we go through. So, right, let's get cracking and get into the topic because I really want to maximise this time. So benefits of a games based approach to coaching. So, Will, from your perspective, why should coaches even consider this as a possible way of coaching? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's complex, but I'll try and start with some some simple ideas, I guess. Really, what you're trying to look for is engagement. Um, we're pretty clear in, in our research and also in our practice that the information in the, in the environments, whether that's opponents or uh, the task or the game that you've asked someone to, to take part in, is really loaded with information. And so a games-based approach just really gives the learner, the person at the centre of this and, and the person we're really interested in, an opportunity and get to engage with as much information as, as possible. So, you know, we're really clear and, and driven around this idea that there is no movement without that information. So you can ask someone to do a turn, uh, let's say in football or rugby or netball or hockey, but without the opponent, where they are on the pitch, those types of things, it makes it really difficult to, to provide context. And so learning actually becomes difficult. And I think that that's the key driver for me is that the more like the information we want them to experience, our practices can be, the more likely they are to take something in, into their sort of development. And, and, and Sally, a lot of your work then has been trying to understand some of the, the mechanics of different things that go on in, in different ways there. Um, but it's, it's something that, you know, back in our football days a long time ago in the, uh, in the Sunny Skills programme, um, th this was when we first started to really kind of embed a games-based approach. So in terms of your coaching journey then, did you have to start to think about how you use that and then some of the points that we'll mention there as a way of um, changing how you worked or as a different view of the world? Um, I think the skills programme and where we, what information we got given um, and applying it day in, day out, you tended and I, I definitely saw the difference in the children. So using the game based, using um, little numbers, you know, 2v2, 3v3, overloads, underloads, and what Will was saying about the different environment and about the learning. It, it really got me curious and um, I really wanted to know why and how it was working because it was working. So the kids were more engaged, they were developing as children, they were developing as players, they were better learners, they seemed to be better in relationships with each other. We seemed to be having a better um, experience of coaching with them. So using the games and I think it just fitted and sitted and it just seemed to just be working so then i wanted to kind of know the science behind it because it it was working so i think it I kind of because i didn't know the how and the why but all i could get is the research back in a sense of confirmation of experiential research and seeing it work with the kids it was just something there then i've just stuck with 
So what are the kind of things that you've now started to try and understand then? So I've looked to take through, um, I went and did a child development course and I've looked at, um, they use in, in education um, with children to understand um, behaviours, but it also links into sport, is around uh, a theory called the polyvagal theory. So it basically is just understanding about the nervous system. And in our brains, we've got a little bit of a play circuit that play to get into a state of social engagement, which basically means they're up for relationships, they're in a, an element of um, all parts of their brain, they're up for learning a lot more, um, they're giving eye contact, they're asking questions, they're planning reflecting. So the neural development that is below the surface that play actually gives you is so important for everything that then above the surface, but also developing of resilience and regulation and everything below it. So there's twofold and I wanted to know why why we were seeing the difference on the on on the grass level and eye level. Um, and play is massive in helping um just setting them up if you ended 15 minutes of play and then you went on to something else and then you carried on with the games based approach even better. But if you then went and did an individual activity or something, it gets the brain into a situation and the nervous system ready for learning for optimal learning and optimal human experience. I mean, it's, it's. A, I guess it's probably a lot more complex than we, than yeah. we first considered, and um, certainly from yeah. a uh, a football perspective, we just had a we had this kind of strap line probably 15, 20 years ago of let the game be the teacher, and it was let's just chuck a ball in and, and hope that learning happens. Um, but what you're saying is it's it's a lot it's a lot more complex yeah. than that. It is, and it's also. When you are the coach, you're, how effective you are in relationship with that child to keep them in their social engagement system and cues of safety is massive for their learning. Because if they come out of their social engagement system and not in the play substrate of the neural development underneath the surface, their learning capacity comes offline. So they're only basically they're just surviving. So you're right, you know, there's, there's the element of the, the practice, but then the role of the coach that then helps to support that cues of safety so that them children are in their social engagement system. So learning so heightened and motivations there and they've got all that healthy relationships. And again, it's just that optimal level of, of human experience that they can, they can achieve in that little game. Yeah. So yeah, it's I, a lot more complex. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I also guess that, you know, we could probably spend, you know, the next hour just looking at the social engagement yeah. system. But what we'll try and do is we'll we'll, we'll pick up some content about that and, and signpost people to some more learning on that. But Will, so would you say, Will, that there's a clear link between uh, learning in the sense that Sally talks about it? So kind of learning, engagement and a games based approach? Yeah, I think so. You know, what Sally's talking about there, the, the kind of the work around neurobiology and, and thinking almost that play creates an opportunity to feel safety over danger and or, or at least play around those ideas of safety and danger. And, and I think that's really uh, key to games based approach as well and, and links nicely to, to the work that we're doing in constraints because the, the environment there will, will set that um information you know that that will that, that sally was talking about so how do i perceive what's going on in my environment so in a games-based approach you you know 11 v 11 or 15 v 15 might appear to be quite unsafe because 
there's too much mess and too much chaos and so learning becomes quite difficult and and th this is why the game isn't the teacher because you've got to really carefully and in a nuanced way slide up and down what what's comfortable for that learner to play in so th the games are important because they provide information in, in sort of direct answer to your question but we can't just sort of put it on and go and get a cup of tea and, and think that learning is going to go on because we've got to build those individual and collective relationships to understand you know what's the safety here how much are they exploring and playing and how having fun in this game versus is it too much for them to cope with is is there no learning go on because they're, they're kind of saturated with the amount of information so the games-based approach is a route to provide the the right sorts of information i guess um and and how we use that to you know whether it's a 2v2 or the full 11v11 will will really impact on on different individuals in different ways and, and trying to understand that is i think an important part of what we're doing i guess there's two things and one kind of picks up simon's question in the chat box there um but one thing i'm also quite conscious of is what, what does play mean or look like to you because a lot of people will have a, their own version or view of what it is or what it isn't so how, how would you define play in this kind of particular context yeah so for me the, the most kind of rich and important place is uh, self-authored if you like so young people generating their own games and creating their own rules and we know that, that an awful lot of learning and development social cognitive emotional development goes on uh, in that space and the reason that, that we started to look at primary aged play and, and whether or not we can use some of the pr principles from constraints-based approaches is because play is quite difficult in the modern sort of society, whether that's access to space or it's safety or it's technology or whatever, we're, we're as coaches dealing with lots of different competing things. So we, we've tried to design games that look as close to self-developed for the, for the learner as, as possible. And for me, that, that's the definition. Can we get them generating their own games within games? And, and that looks more like play and is, I think, more powerful than instructed play and actually lots of authors would argue that that if we're stepping in and setting it up then actually it wouldn't be play in its purest sense sure and, and i guess sally just coming to you then that that kind of notion of fun is probably quite individual as well because what phil uh, what will might find fun is not necessarily what i would find fun so how do you then kind of maintain that like you talked about that kind of that, that safety and social engagement piece while trying to then balance off what other individuals may want or need from a particular system. I think that's what Will was saying around that when we go in and direct it. Whereas if you capture some interests, so some of the work I did last year for the MA module in play, um, we're around trying to capture some of the children's interests. They were only age three and four around what do they so then attach it to the interest. So it might be space, you know, as in like moons and planets and things like that. So I think I think for for us, when we've had children that's trying to engage in that that element of this is fun for me, but that's not fun for me. And there's all them different spectrums of children coming in. I think that element of trying to capture the interest and then asking them to, well, how can we then put this into the next game or what would you like to do with the next little bit and what's the next challenge can you think of the next step so you kind of let them drive it but then you add in the layers and I think it's different because obviously we were doing it with 
really young children in trying to just get them into the element of um engaging and falling in love with the game so trying to there's there's, there's a different elements of which which audience you're working with into it but i mean everybody mm. wants to be fun we've all got the same we've all got the same play circuit in his brain so we still want things to be fun now i think it's capturing on um their interest and then how we then scaffold it up a little bit and work with it that way okay and and then how does that look then from a long-term benefit what why why would you then start to focus on that as a as a younger aspect either talking to some of the stuff that goes on in the brain or maybe just kind of some of the um the, the game type sport outcomes that might be achieved so, so for me as well as we've got the player circuit we've got the seeking system and the seeking systems around curiosity and imagination and following on life goals and pursuing life dreams and that element of how that coach interacts with that child at their formative years with exploration curiosity capturing up of interest the way that they set up some of the games the way that they might put a theme on the games the way that they interact with that child especially the younger age group has a massive impact on that seeking system which is vital for a child's development later through anyway, or if they want to go into their professional football or professional whatever, that having that element of actually following their SNC program, you know, they'll go, oh, this child's not following this because of this. Well, is it that, or is it the fact that they've got an undeveloped seeking system? Is it the fact of something else? So neurologically, I think that's where I kind of try and look at it as. Um, and what do they need in them formative years to help them build on stuff later on as a performer? Okay, okay. So how you know a lot of a lot of people from a team game background though, uh, and Will, I'll be interested in your view on this as well. Would have come through an education system that said, well, you have to start unopposed before <laughs> yeah. you can you can go to now you, you can try and dribble around a cone that they're not the best tacklers in the world, but sometimes cones can get you. Uh, before you get to a semi-opposed thing, before you're allowed to have any fun and play the real game. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of us has come through that world. Yeah. So is that now wrong, Sally? Is that wrong, Will? What, you know, should, should we never do that again? What do you think? <laughs> Who wants to go first? Look, thanks, Sally. Cheers, mate. I th look, I think this is, this is a real dilemma for us as, as coaches and, and, you know, around the coach development space as well is, is this idea of right and wrong. And you know, I'm a big advocate of constraints-based approach. And then you sort of, you get hammered because you've not given people, you know, I'm suggesting that everything's going to organically happen, which, which is not true. So I think the reality is we've got to expose people to lots of different situations to help them with their skill development. I, I guess for me, the fundamental thing is I wouldn't start with the basics as, as I'm always sort of told they need the basics because what is it the basics for? Mm. We, we've assumed so much in that, that individual's learning journey, where they're going to go, what, they, what sports they're going to play. And in fact, other than the 1% that make it as professional athletes, you know, the other 99% of us are, are going to do lots of different things. So what, what, I think is really important is that you expose um, individuals and learners to lots of different situations for them to develop, whether that be physically, emotionally, cognitively, socially. And we can do that, that through, through um, different approaches that aren't stood on a line, waiting my turn, drill, you know, dribbling around a cone, because actually socially, the eight people in the queue waiting are, you know, I've seen it up and down schools and, and clubs. They're having a chat to their mates. They're, they're switched off. 
they're bored, they're disengaged, it comes to their turn, they get through it. It's just not that much fun. Um, and that's not to say that that sort of repetition might not be important later down the line when they're in a club setting or something. And so it's it's really trying to use the range of tools that are uh, that, that we've got as coaches to, to help an individual learner. I like exposing them to games and to complex environments because I think linking information to skill is an important part of actually developing, you know, movement competency, let alone all the other benefits that, that I've just sort of cited. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think, though, the value that I have felt from standing in a queue for a long time as a kid waiting for a go, I have used that skill of patience quite a lot. Stood outside of Sainsbury's waiting my turn to get in there recently. Um, it's probably about the only use for it, I would think. Um, Sally, what do you think of what Will said? Would you agree, support that, disagree? I've got it on two folds anyway. The fact that I think um, my personality and my way that I want to engage the kids in the age group that I tend to, tend to have worked with, even though I've worked with elite female players, I'll tend to look at um, learning, I'll tend to look at play, use of play to then, if we need some serious learning and then come back to it. Because if neurally we're not in that state of social engagement and pro-social behaviours and up for relationships and our, all our thinking capacities online, then whatever we do in a technical practice or in a specific proper practice, um, then it's kind of not it's kind of not um worthwhile so i think putting them into some states that then you do some purposeful practice wherever that is relevant for that age of stage of development of that that child elite player is probably where we need to go down the line but then noticing the behaviors when they're out of their um social engagement system and it's bored or whatever and the babies that come from that because that's showing us that neurologically our nervous system the other things are starting to take over, which then learnings on a real limited capacity and motivation is as well. I think I'll lend it myself to the fact that when we went into lockdown, a couple of weeks before I decided I'd take up golf and I've always wanted to play golf and I've never um, got into it, um, never had the time. And I went, I've been going to the driving range, I've gone about five times and I can hit now the ball to a point get on a nine-ola and it is an all different ball game. And I've got to a point now where I've only been in the driving range five times. I'm like, I don't want to go back on the driving range. Like it's not, it doesn't help me transfer it to the to the golf course. So now I'm like, right, I need to go on the golf course. I'm like, videoing my swing, send it to a friend. Like, can you tell me why I'm using this grip, going back onto it? So I think if you want to play whatever game or sport or whatever, you've got to feel it. You've got to be in it. And that's, and that's just me as a learner now. Like the driving range is all right for a little bit of a chat and a meet up with a friend. But if I want to really learn the game within the feelings, because it's totally different on the golf course. I think, sorry to jump in, Nick, but Sally's point there is is the, the key thing. I think it is a whole different ball game. Like it is literally a different game. So <laughs> you, you, are, you are, if you go down the driving range, you are getting better at hitting a ball at a driving range off a rubber tip or off the off the grass off the astro so th this is the key thing i think about exposing learners to environments that look and feel more like the thing that we're going to ask them to do you know i i, I spent 
from eight to sort of 14, I guess, in kind of academy settings and, and so on, hitting the ball back and forward and then put me in a game. And it's like, I, I didn't pass like that ever again. I didn't have the opportunity to get my knee over the ball, my head over the ball, bend down, get my foot plate, you know, and it didn't look like that. And, and you look at... You look at the professional game, I'm sort of drawn to, I think it was Mason Mount playing for Derby last year when he's falling right away onto his left foot and sort of reaches out his right foot, brings it round and, and chops it into the goal. It's like, there's no chance that you practice that. But what you have yeah. done is expose someone to lots of different environments where they feel comfortable moving their body. And we're yeah. starting to talk now about skill adaptability rather than skill acquisition is how adaptable can we be and, and how much have we exposed our learners to lots of the different environments that, that might mean they can assemble all those bits to produce something new in context? Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Because Sally's point of, of learning golf there, you know, the reality is, is, you know, even however bad you are as a golfer, very rarely do you hit the same shot in a row twice. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and I could never understand why, you know, you'd go somewhere and, you'd be practicing putting and you'd hit 10 putts from the same spot. And I'm like, well, even, even when I'm not very good at putting, it's still gone two meters past, but that's a different side of the hole or a different distance from where I started. So why constantly do something that doesn't look like the game and exactly the points that you're making. And we'll often, we hear some of these words talked about um, on a slide that we've got here that people might not kind of understand as much, but it'd be interesting if you could just kind of, talk people through what this might mean from a the reality of coaching because we hear a lot of these kind of affordances and, and what you've talked about might have been representative design or repetition without repetition but yeah. what, just just give us a kind of a bit of a flavor of how this might look yeah sure so we we sort of come up with these principles around a constraints-based approach with Keith Davids, Ian Renshaw and, and Danny Newcomb um, so I won't take all the credit at all. Um, and and the, these four principles are sort of aligned to our thinking around the, the theories that are linked to constraints-based approaches. You've got to make, so session intention, you've got to make sure that the practice you've designed is likely to bring about the outcome that you're intending. So really quick example, I'll, I'll try and fire through these. I often see coaches asking players to to work harder when they're in a channel, you know, you, you put them in the channel, they're a winger, they receive the ball without any uh, opposition. And then the coach is on the sideline saying, work harder. Well, there's no opposition and there's no one chasing me down. So there's no need to work harder. So if your session intention is for your wide players to work at a certain work rate, you've got to provide the, the problem or the things within the game that are likely to lead to that. Constraint to afford. So constraints is just it's just invitations to act. So what's the information that I, I was talking about earlier that might bring around some sort of, of action? So I was doing some work with, with net, some netball uh, group last year. If you want them to pass flat into the circle, you need to have your defenders in a certain position, you know, to, to encourage that, if you like. Um, representative des design, talked about that uh, quite a bit, Sally and I, in this, I think, is is how much does it feel and look like the actual um, context that you want them to go in? How representative is it? And the last one, I think, you know, we were just talking about your, your golf putt in there, Nick, um, <laughs> is repetition without repetition. I think 
the the accusation of these approaches is surely you need to pass the ball a thousand times to get better at passing the ball um and games don't afford that well well actually you may well need to to pass it a thousand times and no one said that we don't want to expose learners to lots of practice but the key bit is that that it can't be repetitive you know i, I see that um some people in the chat book uh, chat box are talking about muscle memory um, I'll come, that's another thing I'll come back to, but we want, we want lots of passes, but they will never look the same because I'm always in a different space at a different time. The score's different. The, the, my mate next to me is different, is playing more tired, less tired, psych, uh, psychologically online. Sally's talked about that a bit. So what we want is lots of varied practice from different parts of the, the, the pitch or the pool or the court or, or whatever it might be. So we still want lots of passing to use this example, but you can't just stand in one place and kick it backwards and forwards and expect that that's going to be any good to me later in a game. Yeah. Sally, thoughts? Did you always coach like this, linked to these, or is this something that you've, you know, learned, developed, added? Um, I would say that the, the more of the, the constraints, um, I've gone more into it lately in the sense of some real returns so especially in the foundation phase stuff with the foundation phase dna stuff with sturge and that we've looked at what's the some of the constraints to get out some of the the the, the technical returns that we wanted um i tend to go down slack and social because of that's my um biases and where i want to go but yeah we've we've looked at quite a lot of quite a lot of um the same the same planning I think for me, I look at as well as within that, um, within any session, with anything to do with learning or games, because it's it is definitely my bias, and you'll come to know that is is unless they're in that state of um, learning and also their their state of engagement. And I think I forgot what word you used a bit earlier, um, Will and. It's that element of being in that that state to in, to have that element of then what's the right practice at the right time to just give the most optimal learning and the most optimal return. And I think the impact on the nervous system and the brain within what practice we design doing, how we relate to it, for substrate development and that is just massive for me. So the, the, the states that they are in to then how we then can push them in them games as well. Um, and the constraints and what they can handle um, is massive. So I look at it both ways, what's above the surface in, what Will's just explained, and then how then below the surface you can support that to really give the best optimal um, session. Because people say to me, well, you know, we want to stretch and challenge them. Yeah, well, they've got to be in that, that state because otherwise they're not going to plan and reflect. They're not going to problem solve. They're not going to make decisions. You made that thing about Mason Mount. If he's not in all three parts, he's been in a good social engagement state in that in that game. He can't plan and reflect. He's just surviving. He's just working. He's just reacting rather than being proactive. And we see it sometimes in games, don't we? We think, well, that's the pattern of play. Why aren't they picking that up? Yeah. Well, they're reacting to the situation rather than proactive because of their where they are in their brain and how they are in the game and their state that they are in the body. So I think it works vitally both ways. You've got to plan it. To get the best out, but then you've got to be very aware of what what state they're in underneath the surface. Brilliant, thank you. We're, we're kind of halfway along now, and um, 
I mean, this is the beauty of these sessions for me. I just get to be a, a coaching geek and listen to here. I've got a page full of notes scribbled down already here. Um, I think really that, you know, picking up for me there, just the importance of play and how we may well create that experience if if it has to be artif artificially created, how we kind of make sure it still has as many of the facets of what it would look like if children organised it for themselves as much as possible. Um, whilst recognising that there's probably no exact way to coach still, and, you know, we may now kind of move across different things. But the other kind of piece I think that was really important was Sally's understanding of, well, what state do, do young people need to be in in order to try and learn the best? And then how we can manage the environment as much as, uh, as much as we can to try and develop some of these as we go towards using games. As we move into the second half now, I want to get into a bit more detail now about, um, well, how do, how do they help? How does a games-based approach help? And what does it look like? So what it would look like in the planning side of it, what are the key things that you guys as coaches would consider? Uh, what are your top tips of, of what it might look like? If coaches were watching a session, what might they see to really go, oh, yeah, I, I get that. So let, let's start to kind of get into a little bit more detail. And um, so, Will, what, let's start with that kind of seeing piece. If, if Sally and I turned up to watch you coach um, and it's going to be a sunny day because we're not going to come and watch you in the rain, let's just be fair. I probably wouldn't coach in the rain, mate. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But what, what, what kind of stuff would we see if we came along and, and it was a games-based session? What kind of things would we see or hear or kind of get that feeling off from the session? Yeah, I, that, that's a great question and um, not that easy to answer, but I'll do my best. Um, so my, my, I guess my coaching background, aside for, from the work I do with the university, is, is predominantly football. So I'll use that as an example. But... For me, there's there's lots of ball rolling. There's lots of uh, challenge. There's uh, lots of individual coaching. So not necessarily um, big sort of instructional pieces to the whole group, but to talk to Sally's point earlier around readiness. You know, making sure I'm engaged with the players on a really individual level, getting around and maybe just setting them some different challenges and different constraints within any any practice. It it will look representative of the game all the time you know even if that's small parts of the game so it might be 4v4 for example but that 4v4 will have some meaning to the group that are involved with that so might be in the center of the pitch and i'm i'm trying to get midfielders to to think about how they get out of tight spaces or whatever so um there'll, there'll also be consequences not not punishment types consequences but consequences that have meaning that have action so uh, you know um, losing the ball for example in a particular part of the pitch you can be counter-attacked on if you don't have the consequence of losing the ball and being counter-attacked on it's unlikely that we're going to be as vigorous in our defending as as we might otherwise be because you just go oh well we're going to start again so you know to, to a quick summary lots of ball moving it's representative looks like the game it's got consequences. What about for you, Sally? What, what would a what would a session look like if you were then back, you know, working with maybe a 
uh, a school group in that foundation phase or the younger ones there? Um, I think I've kind of tried to look at it lately as like a before, during, after. So I've looked at it on twofold. So before, as they're arriving, how to get them into that state. So personal greeting, structure board, arrival activity. So it enables them to have that play activity, neural state, get into a social engagement system, allow me to have some kind of interaction, a smile, what my face is saying to them is massive on safety and cues of safety. So that first initial bit of trying to get them into it. Um, I agree with Will about arrival activity. My favourite one is I give them choice, but it's normally a soccer, tennis or four cones and a ball, make your own game up. So we, we're incorporating some choices. Um, oh, that's it. You've got it. Um, and then, um, so structure board enables the children to those that struggle with uncertainty and can normally come to your sessions and go, what we're doing tonight, we're playing at weekend, what we're doing after this. It gives them a sense of safety straight away. So gives them arrival activity, puts them into pro-social behaviours for team sports. Um, I know I'm very team sports, but that's my background, sorry, but still same. If you are doing an individual sport, still a bit of a play activity. Um, the session, like Will's just said, I definitely would be around um, small numbers with the little ones, 4v4s, game-based constraints. So, you know, um, very much psych and social games I really like, um, but that's me. So very much, much ball time rolling, um, underloads, overloads, stressing them. Um, same with... I was thinking back today and I thought, do, did I really do much game based with the with the when I worked at Donny Bells and we did we played the FA Cup against Arsenal and we just did it for the week before leading up to it. Um Arsenal back Bells, we were going to defend to counter. Um, and the constraint was when Arsenal got over the halfway line, any amount of passes if they scored this they got them goals. So if 14 passes, they got a goal because we knew we, that whole guy was going to play. And we were time. Um, if 12 seconds, if we scored after six, we got 12 goals. So we just set up and we just did it 11 v 11 for, for two weeks before we went to play Arsenal. And that was kind of thing. So very much games, very much elements of games, very much tinker on. We dropped the halfway line back and things like that. Um, especially same with the little ones. Um, and then afterwards, I'd do a, a feelings check-in before we finished. So understanding of the learning, so the sensing in. Um, and to see where they are in their behaviours and then a personal reason to check out to close it for the element of the safety in the brain. So, yeah, that's kind of how I now set, how I set my sessions out. Well, what's the kind of view, Will, that, you know, uh, in high performance or elite sport, you know, there's no time for games or fun. It has to be tactical, drilling them. Players have to know exactly what you're doing. And, and then Sally, maybe the same from your experiences of working with, you know, elite women's football. Yeah, is there a place for a games-based approach still there? Do you think, or is it, you know, the coach is king or queen? Their manager, they tell them what to do, they drill them. Um, uh, look, that's that again a difficult one. You, you're good at this. You're good at the questions. Um, <laughs> you know, th there are there are managers around the world much more experienced than me, so I'm not going to tell them how to do their job necessarily. But I think that you, you see the the coaches that that have an affinity with their players and are engaging their players in in fun and joy and uh, tend to to get a lot out of their players on a social and individual level. You know, 
Friday afternoon uh, or Friday morning five asides was was kind of the staple growing up as a as a player, and I, and I, I think that why we started playing the game is because it was good fun and we probably went down the park with our mates and did you know 15 versus 18 local park really good fun and trying to replicate that i think is is really important notwithstanding there's a very serious side that that we need to to practice and train for so getting a really good mix i think is important and sort of reflecting on my time working with the women's team uh in the sort of you know what the old division one and, and women's premier league long time ago was that they, they just wanted to to play it was the thing that they they hung out for and, and almost stripping that back and seeing that as the thing you do at the end of the the training session mm -hmm. as some sort of reward for doing well i think is is counterintuitive um it's, it's a bit like running as a punishment yet the whole point of the sport is to run so you, you've got to try and create some affinity with enjoyment and and I think that that that's something I would encourage for sure. Yeah, definitely. I remember seeing uh, a, a coach. He's a very smart coach who um, who said that the um, the prize for winning this particular game that we were playing was you got to do another twenty minutes of running. And everyone saw that as well. That's a punishment because you know you're making us do twenty minutes running. And his flip was. No, you're getting 20 minutes fitter yeah. than everybody else and you how we about, framed it. Yeah, you spend about two and a half minutes on the ball in a game of football, so you better be good at running for 87 and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, if I got two minutes, I've done well. So, um, yeah, most of them was just taking throw-ons, I think. Um, but, but what does this look like then, Sally, as we're kind of returning to play in COVID times and we've got some maybe some socially distanced... Um, parameters to our to our different sports to look at how might that kind of influence what we think about with a games-based approach at the moment i think if you take it one step back from that about what session i think the role of the coach and how you enforce some of the stuff within or you how you create some of the, the things with connection before you even get them into the session after covid is going to be vital because like you said with the elite performers, you know, we've still all got the same circuits in us brain. We've still got the play circuit, even elite performers. But real for them to have a state of calmness and to have it be more into their learning, they'll have got to have some elements of play to get them into that state. So if you're going to real go down the technical or whatever, they'll, they'll have elements of play or interaction before you can get them in or the learning is limited. So think when we're going back from COVID, we've got to understand that the play, I know there's obviously regulations going to be around how, cl how close you can be and all that that's coming out. But play is going to be even more beneficial because of the how it helps the recovery of trauma. And we're in really a trauma-informed world before even COVID happens. So how the children are going to come back into the, the sessions and how they will need some real support and development within and the best way to do that for me would be play um, and games based because of how much they've gone through in loss of structure loss of schooling maybe loss of a family mm. member actually physically or a friend because yeah, yeah. everything that's coming back to it and play um and helping children go into their social engagement system is one of the most productive ways of restoration 
So promoting health and restoration is how we can help that nervous system and that neural development to happen. So I think it's I think it's a worrying time for me because I feel like when things go back, we'll go, we've missed out on so much within technical or within schooling. Um and we're really missing probably what the real the children really need and probably what we really need as well. Um to really get us back into developing and healing some of the trauma that we will have all gone through because whether we say, oh, it's been all right, I've been fine with it, that, that we haven't. Nervous yeah, system yeah. is not in that way. Yeah, it's going to be a really tough time, I think. And we've got some more uh, time to learn sessions coming up with uh, Russell Earnshaw and Anne Marie Monk to talk about this coming up. So keep an eye for those webinars. Um, but yeah, you're right, it's going to be a crucial thing. And play is definitely going to be one of those things that hopefully will reconnect us. Interesting yeah. point from Luke in the uh, in the chat box here. Um, so, yeah, it, it, you know, typically and, and certainly, you know, your view of the world might be more team sport based. But what does it look like in an individual sport? So, um, you know, so my six year old son now who's learning to ride his bike at the moment, um, when I get him to high five me, uh, he might think it's fun and a game. You know, can we get five of these done in three minutes? but it's kind of teaching him to ride one-handed uh, and get some better balance perhaps because at the moment if he gets an itchy nose he has to stop which is just really awkward uh, but is that a games-based approach to you know helping or a constraints-based approach and kind of picking up James's question in there um, what, what, what is it Will you know am I just being a difficult dad which is quite possible or am I going to get some you know some technical returns for my son learning to ride his bike in that kind of way as well yeah it's a, it's a great question I, I think the the nitty-gritty of it is that constraints based approach isn't a games-based approach um so the the kind of games-based approach is teams get uh, team games for understanding teaching games for understanding sorry or game sense in the southern hemisphere games-based approaches um i've got a really important place i think in the in our toolkit but constraints led approach is really concerns itself um and sorry about the the big words but sally started it i guess earlier on so i'm okay is <laughs> this idea of <laughs> is this idea of um ecological dynamics so ecological psychology that environment is important in the way that we perceive and that the the dynamics bit comes from dynamic systems so our ability to to move and organize ourselves within that that kind of system and and so i think that the constraints led approach and, and as an advocate of it you'd expect this is is less about games and more about uh, encouraging that representative design so I, you, that can be 1v0 so just really quick example in in cricket you know you see the bowling machine a lot and but we know that there's loads of information that's important in the way we we move or bat that is inherent in the bowler so the height of the ball the wrist position the the release the speed of attack will all impact and, and we've seen research to demonstrate this how i actually choose to select my shot and um, so the more we strip that information out the less likely we are to get movements that that are sort of deemed useful in in context so for me um games-based approach is really really useful for us but the constraints-led approach really offers the kind of theoretical underpinning i guess uh, through ecological dynamics as to as to how we can design 
um, practices that, that support the types of movements. And that can be, as you say, high-fiving on a bike to, to create some instability, to, to create adaptable movement. It could be facing a bowler um, in, a, in a cricket net. It could be as simple as in a, in a tennis practice, making sure that there is an opponent rather than there's a cone to hit to because where the ball's coming from is equally as important as where is it going to kind of thing. Yeah, and I think I found myself doing this a little bit at the weekend with uh, with Callum as we were playing in the garden. Um, and he's picked up a cricket bat um, and very good at then just hitting it across his body. Very good at hitting it across his body. Um, so even just by telling him, right, if you can hit it past me over here, you you know, you know get one point. But if you can hit it on the other side, I'll give you six points. So without even kind of coaching, he's now developed a different shot where he's able to kind of hit it on the other side, mainly because of an entirely arbitrary scoring system that's helped yeah. him. And if you speak to Ian, yeah. Ian Renshaw, you know, his son's played for Australia a couple of times. Their their backyard was set up in a way that his kind of, I think it's his pull shot is really strong because that was the way to score points in his, his garden. And so that was the sort of movement that he produced. And it, it's, it, you can do that. You know, the environment will provide information. So I don't think this is just games. This is, you know, 1v0 kicking against the wall is loaded with information. Just, I guess our argument is that the less representative it is, the less transfer there might be into the to the game. But it doesn't mean that it's useless, and that's the the key point. It it's useful for something. Absolutely. I so think. Yeah, I think for me, Nick, I look at it as a different slant. So, handshake for me, or like a high five for Callum those far, is you're creating a state in him that enables safety. So his cues of safety, because he'll co-regulate from that element of that soft touch with you through social attachment and through the dopamine that gets, like the good chemicals that gets thrown, which enables him then to keep being more risk-taking, to, to keep more learning, to check more challenges. And I think, Will, you mentioned about that and that adaptive, adaptive like movement. Well, to have adaptive movement, you need to be in adaptive behaviour state. Yeah. So that state of safety that you're creating actually enables that thing then to to then progress. So again, that state of how you put them in to then what then becomes of the movement and the action and everything else that you put them into that um, exercise or that practice or that session is massive. So I, it, you know, it's really interesting me with how children co-regulate with their with with their caregivers and who they really feel safe with and the high fives and the stuff like that for me for learning is massive on especially with younger children massive on keeping them then in that state to, to learn and to take the risks and to challenge themselves so i looked at it on a different slant if but that's my child development on yeah absolutely um <laughs> uh so we've also got a planning slide where you've kind of linked in the grow model um and if you kind of want to give, again, a little bit of a flavour about how somebody and that, you know, they could take a photo of this and, and see this on the screen now, how, how might this kind of influence your planning? Yeah, so I think that, that all of the things that we've talked about re require you as a coach to be pretty tuned in to what's going to the in, into the individual. So we spent a lot of time thinking about planning because I think if you can do all that planning work, that gives you more opportunity to coach. You're less concerned with you know, going through your progressions in a, in a coaching practice. So we just sort of used this model uh, in some of the work we've been doing to, to think about 
the grow model here you know what's the session intention what are you trying to to do so if it's uh creativity in the final third making sure that all your practices are designed you know what's the reality so can your players or your learners cope with that what kinds of affordances do you want to design in so what what are the practices what's the information you're going to kind of release to the to the players through your practices and and how uh, and this is really important i think how every little thing is a, is a piece of information so uh, just really quick example you want players to scan when they're receiving the ball if you've put loads of cone brightly colored cones down they're not going to scan because the cones are there and they can pick that up in their periphery so you know it, it's just the tuning to to all of those little bits of information in your session you know what's actually going to go on what will they pick up what will they they see um in terms of option you know we've got lots of uh stuff in our book recently about the types of different um practices that you might expose a learner to from from sort of 1v0 right through to 11v11 uh, and understanding what success looks like i think is really important there so you know uh, uh, sally's already talked about you know how the athlete feels how they're ready how the learner feels about what's going on what if you're in a performance environment maybe what does the data show and then that that way forward part is just you know how do we actually um how do we connect to our athletes how we do we prepare for them how uh, to be in the, the session how do we prepare our environment what's what is the overall environment like and and really starting to think about the nuances of of every bit of detail because then when you turn up to coach it is solely focused on what's my individual getting out of this rather than worrying too much about or well, we were going we were going to go to a 5v5 now before an 11 well actually that that's irrelevant if their their progress isn't going where you'd want it to you know you're focused in on the learner you can actually pick that detail up yeah definitely um and we've got an example of uh a practice sally one of uh, a little game that you might have used um that kind of explores a little bit more about what it might look like um yeah this is this is only my little favorite game so that's a point in but i think will's point is is and we found it well i found it definitely with with coaches coming through the system a little bit is when 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 coaches are planning, sometimes we just put words in our in our boxes without really, really understanding what comes out of it or how to get it out. So planning for us has been a massive thing within work lately. And this is just a, an example of a, a a little session that that is one of my favourites, but it's all this type and social. And it literally is you've got to win both pitches to win the game. So if the yellows on win on on pitch one, then um and the yellows lose on the other pitch that it becomes void and they can then start to understand if the red if the blues are winning three nil on one pitch and they can send some players over to the other pitch so it's very much around underloads overloads recognizing when they need to transfer who's the effective communicators who's actually in their social engagement system um, and you can put then little things on so there might be a goalkeeper there might not be so you put little constraints on that they can dribble it and they can pass it in. So it, this is just, I think for me, it, it it gives a different constraints and you can put different things onto it. And 4v4 things for us work massively at, um, at elite level and with the little ones. Um, but it's it enables it enables the 
stressors on the nervous system to be able to then, as a coach, be able to support them. So I think that's kind of where I've kind of gone with it as well. The fact that if you create that right environment, your plan is right. All then you're noticing is, like Will said, you're just noticing behaviours and then you can literally work off that um, to really then try to support them athletes, players, mm. children. So, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's a really neat way of, I think, of applying the grow model and the planning side of it. Because I think if you're going to use uh, a games-based approach or be working through constraints because of the differences between the two, I think you really have to understand the sport and have a really good understanding of the sport in order to understand what things you can or can't constrain that still keeps it representative and actually really still look like the game so there's definitely a need for coaches to really understand the sports and marianne mentioned in the chat box earlier about how she's applied this way of thinking with a horse involved and um i mean i've done some pretty bad coaching sessions but i've never got to the stage of my players being horses but uh it, it, it must bring a whole new dynamic where there's still a way of being able to do this to use a constraints approach to to support the development of uh performers regardless of whether they've got four legs or two legs i guess um so just as we start to kind of wrap this up and, and conscious that you know we could carry on this conversation for another three hours quite happily on this topic um what what's the the biggest most important thing that you think that that you've learned each of you that's had the biggest impact in your coaching so we'll start with you sally what, what's had the biggest impact in your coaching um understand oh god that's hard that <laughs> I think um, at present, the biggest thing that's influenced my coaching is is understanding about what's below the surface. So really getting to grips with the polyvagal theory, because I think it's I think it's a preamble for everything else. And it also gives an understanding of whatever it's the core of when I'm looking at other when I'm looking at theories, or I'm looking at applied psychology stuff or I'm looking at other bits within within this area. It just seems to always come back to, I don't know if it's my bias, but always seems to come back to that. It's kind of what underlines or underpins everything else uh, and how other disciplines can be explained. So for me, I mean, it's it's only just come out. I mean, it got probably exposed in 94, but really only come to fruition 2009, 2011. And sports just now starting to look at it. Education's really going with it now. But I think just that understanding what's below the surface so that actually every child that's in front of you or every performer or whatever it is in human capacity to understand that element of polyvagal theory with how you apply it to to um human experience and how you get into relationships has just been just been massive for me i think just in work life in life in coaching mm. life and just in in general and i think that's a massive thing you said Fuzzy's just yeah, yeah, good mentors. <laughs> Will, what about you? Oh, there's there's two things for me. Um, firstly, it's other people. So uh, you know, I, I could name them all, but um, it's a long list. Having other coaches that have been a big part of your journey. So so reaching out and making sure that that people can test and challenge your ideas and and help form your ideas. And the other thing in terms of learning about coaching is that it's a journey that you don't have all the answers to. And I know this sounds a bit sort of perhaps a bit woolly, but that, that's important for me. So if you asked me 10 years ago, I'd have said that, that all you needed to understand was coaching and you can coach any sport. But 
you asked me today and I'd say you need to really understand the sport in order to design the, the right sorts of coaching and and importantly as well to Izzy's point on the the chat you need to understand people so I guess for me the big takeaway of my coaching journey is that it's really complex and messy and that you don't have all the answers and and that's that's kind of okay as long as you, you're sort of trying to put the learner at the the center of the experience and you have good people around you that can help them yeah absolutely i think that's a a, a brilliant message to to finish there um just conscious that we're we're at that stage now of, of wrapping up but so much stuff in this show that you know um fortunate to, to have you both on so so thank you very much for, for giving up your time um we've got some some further links of different pieces of content available um uh so teaching games for understanding one of the uh, particular kind of games-based approaches that we'll talk about here we've got a video that um rob thorpe who's the the founding father of tgfu uh, I was fortunate to sit down and um, I was basically like a fanboy, to be fair, just sat with Roz as the, the absolute guru of this, just talking about this and just being able to pick his brain. So we've got a link and we'll share that. Connected coaches, loads of stuff in there. The, the session that we've got coming up next week on Curious Coaches Club is a player special. So we will have two elite players, current top performers at the top of their game sharing their experiences of coaching, what it was about, what they liked, what they didn't like, what's had the biggest impacts on them. We'll certainly get into, well, was it all drills or did you have some fun and do some games in there as well? Or did you find the drills fun? And we'll start to really kind of get into some different things with uh, a couple of elite players next week. So all will be revealed as to what that is. So same time next week. And the week after that will be uh, a fairly topical one at the moment. Athlete A, if you haven't seen that on Netflix, it's a tough watch, but it's it's certainly worth watching. And with some of the other things that have been going on at the moment within different sports in this country. Uh, so, again, we'll be starting to unpick that and how that links into duty to care as well. And it's a hugely important topic. So, again, that's what we've got coming up in the next couple of weeks. We're also doing a survey. So we've been running this now for 16 weeks or however long we've been going through lockdown now. But what we want to do is look at, well, do we continue it? Do we not? How do we shape it? So we'll send you uh, a link. We'll make sure we get access so that you can tap into the survey. So we'd really like your feedback about what we do for this. Um, do we keep it going? What kind of topics do you want? Those kind of different bits and pieces, because it's something that we've done for a long time and uh, hundreds and hundreds of people have, have accessed this. But we want to make sure we get your feedback to keep shaping it. Join us at UKcoaching.org. Whatever you're doing to help people be active and improve, we can help you deliver great coaching experiences at a time to suit you.